Hi, I'm Liam Ford, founder and CEO of The Zone, and welcome to The Zone Way Podcast. The Zone Way Podcast is a deep dive with my guests into leadership and organizations. It reflects our work together over the last 25 years in more than 35 countries. My guests bring the richness and authenticity of lived experience that ripples beyond textbooks into our everyday lives, illuminating the challenges, the celebrations, successes and failures we will all face. The Zone Way is a philosophy, a methodology and a set of tools to create enlightened leaders and enlightened organizations. Welcome and enjoy. Today's guest is Bob Azelby, all the way from Seattle. And Bob's been in the pharma business for over 30 years. And he brings this unique way of blending and balancing today with tomorrow with people and commercial and to make ideas work. And that's a recipe for his success. So let's talk to Bob and find out some of those gold nuggets. Hey, how are you, Bob? And uh, is it morning in Seattle? Is it, is it evening? Yeah, it's early afternoon in Seattle, Liam, and it's great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you, Bob. And so today we have on our uh, podcast guest Bob Azelby and a real veteran in the in the pharma industry. But, you know, let's sort of start off in the beginning, Bob, and, and like how long ago was it that we actually met? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that, Liam, and I think we got started working together in, in late 2013, early 2014, as you were kind of helping me get up to speed in uh, running Amgen's oncology business in the United States. And I thought I knew some things until I met you. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there were some really insightful moments as you helped me bring that cross-functional team together. Yeah, that was a, that was a quite a big team, and we had a lot of fun, didn't we? Because we worked together for quite a few years. So, so we did. Yeah. What are those sort of memorable moments for you? Yeah, I, I think the number one memorable moment. There's two, but I think the biggest one was uh, you came in. You know, I hired you to help me kind of bring this team together, and making sure we're aligned, and you did two days worth of interviews with everybody on the team, and <laughs> then we right. go to dinner. And you say, hey, would you like to know what I found and what the problem is? And of course, I'm like, I think I said to you, of course I do, because I pay you, right? <laughs> and, uh, and you said, uh, the problem is you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. what? And, and then I'll never forget it. You said, you have to stop being a victim and stop blaming people or the organization or why you can't get to where you want to get and take ownership of all of it and figure out a path. And I think that's, you know, that's one of those career moments that uh, I'll never forget. And at first I didn't like the message, but uh, it turned out to be 100% correct. And then the second message was, I actually thought because Amgen was so big, it's a big biotechnology company that you know, every function has their own goals and they're, they're not aligned many times. And I thought it would be challenging to get everyone aligned with the same goals. And, and when you work hard at it and you create that mission where everyone wants to be part of, they'll sacrifice some of their career aspirations to be part of a team that they think can make a real difference. And I think they were two enormous learnings that I still carry uh, with, with me today. You're in Seattle now, but you weren't born in Seattle. And I, I can tell from your accent, and the American listeners can tell, but, you know, 
our global listeners may not be able to recognize that accent. So, and I, I enjoy working with the people with that accent, just by the way. Sure, <laughs> they're, sure. they're some of my favorite people because they have. So, tell us about the accent and tell us about where that's from and tell us about the characteristics of that accent because I said it really is true. Yeah, and so I'm born and raised in northern New Jersey, about six miles outside of New York City. You know, my dad was a New York City policeman, and it's a, I would say it's a, a rougher part of the country when I was growing up than, than the rest of the world. And so, you know, I lived there for the first 18 years of my life before college, but then I lived in Boston and I lived in Philadelphia. And so I think I've combined the three worst accents you could ever have into one. And so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's the it's the cross I carry, as they say. Yeah, and what's that? What are the characteristics? I mean, like you know, that you've sort of pulled through because I know there's probably some of them you didn't pull through. But what are those characteristics you pulled through? Yeah, I, I I think a lot of folks who have never worked in the U.S. would think that the U.S. has one culture, and it really doesn't, right? There's mm. there's there's cultures throughout. There's a Midwest culture. There's a Southern California culture. There's a Northeast culture, and you know, I would give you the Northeast culture is much more candid, a little more aggressive. You have tougher skin. You don't take things personally. And then when I moved to the West Coast, I would say that has a little more of a nicer culture, a little more passive aggressive culture. And and candidly, when I took a job there, I had to get coached on how to adapt my Northern New Jersey style the fit better in the Southern California style. And then I became the coach of all the other Northeastern guys when they came to the Amgen to kind of, what I would say, you know, maybe smooth out the uh, the edges to say the least. Yeah, that's great because it's, it's fun. I always remember the workshop we did when you came in and we were sitting around in a circle and someone looked down and you had one sock on and no <laughs> no no other sock on and you told us the story of why that was so i think that's that's a memorable moment for me so what what was the story behind that sock man (laughs) you know you you know what you know classic you know i would get up and go to the gym in the morning and you know i put two socks in my gym bag and my dog removed one of them and then when i get to the gun you know coming out of the gym after your shower and we have this usually a two-day offside i couldn't drive home and get the other sock and so uh Yo, I went handsies that day. One sock on, one sock off. And uh, I did my best to hide it, but it, it, it didn't work. Yeah. But I mean, that sort of epitomized your leadership, which was like down to earth, straight up. You weren't afraid to be yourself. And I think you really encouraged people to be themselves, not not to be a corporate stereotype. And uh, one of the real reasons that I wanted to get you onto this podcast, because I know so many people that I'm working with now right across the US and and into the UK and Europe who have worked with you. Every single one of them without a doubt says, Bob can be challenging, but I I would work for him a drop of a hat. So I want to sort of get under the hood of Bob and and go, so what, what is that? How do you approach leadership? And why do those people keep coming back even though they might have some New Jersey feedback. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, obviously you never really can put your, your hand on it, but I, I do think a little bit it says, you know, you always got to remember where you came from. And, you know, my dad was a policeman and, was you know, didn't graduate high school. And, you know, we were from modest means and he worked hard and allowed us to go to college and created enormous opportunities. So never forgetting from 
where you're from. And then also, I, I'm just a huge believer in that everyone brings value to an organization, right? You need everybody's insights uh, uh, as you go forward. And I got better. I wasn't great at it early because I wanted to deliver results and I was gruff. And although I thought I wanted to listen to everyone's opinions, I wanted them to think I wanted to listen to their opinions. But at the end of the day, I really wanted to get things done fast. And, uh, you know, as you start to grow, you learn that you got to listen more, right? And that if you really want people to be bought in both heart and soul into an organization, you got to listen to them, you got to empower them. And, and, you know, candidly, no matter what position you have, you can't take yourself too seriously because no one's better than anyone else, right? And, and in a business like we are in the pharmaceutical business, there's just so many different functional expertise that you need that, that you need them all and you need them all to work really well together because if they don't work well together, you won't have success. Mm, so that's a bit of the secret. So so after Amgen, you then went to another, and you took a big risk because you went from I did. one of the big biotech businesses with billions and billions of, of, of turnover, and you ran a really, really big business, and you took a big risk. I know that they probably wanted to keep you at Amgen, but you took a big risk. So why did you take that risk, and what can you tell people? Because you know some of the listeners are going to be, entrepreneurs that are about to take those risks or maybe even executives in the same position that you are like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't. So what can you tell them about why you took that risk and why you recommend it almost? If, if you do, maybe you say don't. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> listen, that is one of the best moves I've ever made. But when I was thinking about it, just to give people context, I was running a $6 million franchise at eight, 800 people or so. That was the organization I ran. It was a a premier job, and I still had potential to be Angen's chief commercial officer. So I still was on a runway, not that anything's guaranteed, but I was in the hunt for that role. And just so the listeners, you, you did say billion, six billion, not six million, yes, right? And that's billion. U.S. dollars. That's, that's correct. That's, that's a US big business. Dollars. So very, one of the largest cancer businesses in, in the United States and in the world, right? And so, so quite big. And Southern California is an amazing place to, to live, 75 degree and sunny every day. And, uh, you know, I got really enthralled with what they call immuno-oncology, where you're actually leveraging the body's T-cells to fight the cancer. And although at Amgen, I had products in my portfolio that did that, but I got introduced to a company that was on the cutting edge of taking people's own T cells and re-engineering them to help people, you know, defeat cancer. And uh, mm. I got enamored by the science, and so I went from a staff of, uh, you know, almost eight hundred to myself. And so I became the chief, the chief commercial officer of a, a small biotech, and I was the first commercial person in the organization. And the scary thing about it was I had to go and rely on skills I haven't used in ten or twelve years, like building a detail piece, calling vendors, right? Actually creating presentations, things that I kind of, as you move up an organization, you do less of. And uh, and I would just tell you, when you're thinking about it, a gentleman named George Morrow, who was a mentor for me, when I called him and said, should I take the job? He said, Bob, step back and say, when you retire, do you want to say you were the chief commercial officer of Amgen? Or would you like to say you helped build a really new, exciting company fighting cancer and that neither was guaranteed in terms of success? 
Mm. And then I thought back and I said, you know, I think when I retire, I'd rather say I went to a small biotech and helped build it than continue to go and get to a big spot of a big company. And for that, that was the big decision that led me to move from Southern California to slightly rainy Seattle. And then from there, I mean, that was a huge success and that was bought by another big player, right? And then you moved Correct. again. So how come you didn't stay with that big player again? Was that fire still burning in you? It was, but but I knew that, you know, when we had great success at Juno and it was bought by Celgene and, um, but I didn't want to go work for a Celgene because that was like an Amgen. Right. Right. And yeah. so, and then, you know, I was like, okay, I got confidence, right? Every road you have success and you get a little more confidence. And then I said, okay, when I think about my bucket list, I would like to be the CEO of a publicly traded company. Mm. And uh, that opportunity was afforded to me a couple months after that, where I took on the CEO role of a company called Alder Bio that had a monoclonal antibody for the prevention of chronic migraine. And so I had the opportunity to join a 250-person company and lead that. Cool. And then that's not the end of the story, though, right? <laughs> so No, no. Uh, yeah, this, is, this is a pretty cool story of pretty amazing success. So you were a CEO there. And then, then what happened? And then where did you go next? Yeah. And so then, you know, my remit there was how do you take a very science oriented organization that, and make it more of a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company that was about to launch a product and sell it. Right. And so I, you know, turned over the whole entire C-suite and we started gearing up to, to launch. We put more processes in place. And then, you know, lo and behold, we get a call from uh, a company called H. Lundbeck out of Denmark. And they decided to acquire us for a little over $2 billion. And so I was about 17 months into that role before that was a completed deal. And that was a, that was a big success as well in terms of kind of gearing the company up for launch and then, then getting acquired. Yeah, I remember when we, because we worked together in Juno and all on the culture and the team and building that exec team. So I, I remember that, those turbulent times and, you know, there was there was a lot of stress and a lot of hand on heart. You had to make decisions both with your gut, but, you know, also with your, your head, but a lot of decisions were made with your heart. So tell us about that because, you know, that whole person is something that I know that you really are tuned into and yeah, no, I think, you know, obviously the zone did a tremendous job for helping us bring the um, that new team together, right? And I would say when I think about the team that was there, let's call it about seven of us, if I'm not mistaken, I would say six out of the seven fully bought in. The one person was, you know, still didn't love like really sharing and opening up. But that process is a lot about spending time together and, and building trust. And trust isn't about as you would always coach, is it's not about worrying that someone's going to stab you in the back. Trust is about being vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm not very good at this. Can you, can you cut? You're good at this. Can you help me rather than pretending you're good at everything? And so I, I thought in partnership with The Zone, we did a nice job of bringing that team together and a bit of a roller coaster. You know, we had highs and then we had lows. And yeah. You know, we were always a little dicey on whether or not we were going to make it, you know, whether it be manufacturing things and you know, in the end, it, it really is about the people you work with and, and how you attack those problems that I think is the highlight of going to work every day, besides for making medicines that help uh, patients. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's always been part of, I, 
of who I've known you are, which is the difference we can make to patients. You know, so that's that's always been center. Like you, you're excited by the science and you're excited by the commercial challenge and bringing the team together. But if you're not making a difference to the patients, that's not really where you want to play. And tell us about your your newest gig. Tell us about that because this this is really interesting. This is this is a game changer, right? Yeah, it could be. And so, you know, when I got when I got with done with Alder, I thought about retiring and just sitting on boards. And uh, yeah, then COVID hit, and then you know, my wife was like, "You got to get out of here." Right? Although you don't get out of here, you go stick yourself in a room and you zoom all day. But anyway, you know, we had an opportunity to look at. Uh, you know, I took some of my team members from Alder, and we looked at you know over two dozen assets. And what we were looking for is, and there's a lot of great science going on, but a lot of it's really early and you don't know if it'll ever make it. Mm. And then we got introduced to a company called Elium and um, the lead asset is focused on chronic pain. Mm. So for folks that don't know about chronic pain, it's probably the largest market in the world. And there hasn't been new innovation in the space in two decades. And basically people suffer every day. They can't go to work. They're constantly in pain. And the choices are really NSAIDs, antidepressants, or anticonvulsants. And about a third of them get relief, but many can't even tolerate the agents. And then if they don't work, really the next product out of the bag is opioids. Wow. And in the U.S., you know, we've had huge problems with opioids. And the fact that opioids work, but you build up a tolerance to them right? So your pain comes back. So you have to take a higher dose. And then when you start oh. taking higher doses, your probability of addiction or abuse liability goes up. And so we have an agent that we think, you know, we got to run it through the clinical trials and, uh, you know, hit the endpoints and things. But we think we have an agent that if we can jump through those regulatory hurdles through clinical trials, can make a difference for hundreds of millions of patients throughout the globe. And, uh, you know, we're excited to, to do that. And then our second asset is focused on uh, epilepsy and depression. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a family in the world that doesn't know what depression is. And I think the whole COVID thing has exacerbated that whole scenario. And uh, we think we have an opportunity to actually change the landscape in that grievous illness as well. Wow. So those are those are two like they're they're hitting huge populations, you know that that's making a huge difference to the world. Correct. You know, and, and like for those that don't know the the pharma process of you know jumping those hoops. I mean, it's not it's not an easy process. It's not a done deal, right? It's you, you know. No, what I always say if you want to leave like big farm and go to small biotech, right? You have to be resilient because uh, the science throws you a curveball throws you a result that you're not expecting on a pretty regular basis. And so your, your greatest plans, you have to be able to pick yourself up, focus on the science and, and adapt. And the journey is almost a decade from the time you think you have something to the time you can actually uh, have a doctor prescribe it. And along that way, you know, many things can happen that are not all positive. And the other big element is it's a quite expensive journey. To continue to run all those trials and get a get a drug to market. Yeah, so it's a huge, huge investment and a huge risk. That's correct. And so the investment community plays an enormous role in, in investing in innovation. Mm. So, you know, if we go back to those two sort of potential choices that people have, you've got young people who want to get into this, this science and they want to make a difference and they're 
entrepreneurial and they'd, they'd love to join a team. And then on the other side of it, you've got the seasoned players who are probably working for the Amgens, the Celgenes, the, you know, the, the Pfizer's or the BMS's or whoever else. And they're, going, they're looking at themselves in the mirror after this pandemic and saying, is this where I want to be? Do I want to, as you said, your, your great friend said, you know, where do you want to be in life? Yeah. What's your advice about taking that journey from either end? If you're an entrepreneur or if you're a, you know, like employee type mindset, Yes. So I think, um, you know, honestly, it's a life choice, right? In every individual. And so what I'll give you is if you go to a large company like an Amgen or a BMS or a Merck, your focus is really narrow, but they train you really well. Mm. Or if you go to a small biotech, you get enormous amounts of breath, but you don't really become an expert in anything, right? Because you're putting out fires all the time. There's great value there, right? Yeah. So to me, when I look to hire folks in small biotech, because every hire is critical, what I prefer is trained in big, but has resiliency of small. So the ideal candidate for me when I hire is someone who's been technically trained because they spent a decade in the big company, and they've also experienced small biotech and know what it takes after you get a setback because all small biotechs in my mind have setbacks mm. and you have to have the right mentality to succeed in small biotech. And so I would suggest you lean with a combination of the two, but obviously individuals like working in big companies all the time. Some like working in small biotech. For me, I like the combination between the two. Mm. So, I mean, you know, should people apply to you if they need a job? I mean, are you looking for people? What I mean, who are you looking for? I mean, have you got millions yeah, of vacancies yes. or what? You know? Yeah, no, we're growing, right? And so we have to. We have about twenty eight employees today, and you know, we're going to probably double that in the next year. We got to turn over some what we call data cards, right? We got to turn over some clinical data results before we start to uh, to expand. But yeah, but the role the people I'm looking for, as I just stated, is. Because when you work for me, I'm going to say, hey, you have you got to go and build it, right? I'm not, I'll help you. But listen, at the end of the day, I'm hiring you for your experience, right? And so it's go drive the car. Here's the keys. And so I'm looking for those experienced people, but they also have to be resilient. And when I would make a comment on that, when you're at a big company like a Merck or an Amgen, you won't go out of business in a day. They're just too big. They're giant ships, right? right and they right. can move you to a new world. When you're in a small biotech and you have one or two assets and they don't go well, then all of a sudden you may have to go get a new job, right? And and so you have to have that mentality to, to be able to handle the challenges that are thrown at you. Mm, that's really, really good. So, you know, I, I think that's insightful for people when they when they want to make that choice. Do you have that tolerance for risk and ambiguity? And how do you handle that? Do you shrink back and, and sort of collapse and go, oh, my God, everything's broken? Or do you lean in and go, we're going to solve this. We, we've got to solve this. We might not, but we're going to give it everything to get it solved, right? And most people think they can do it, but when the thing really happens, there are two different characters. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When the rubber hits the road. I mean, what's the old saying about, you know, the plan only lasts until it reaches its first customer or something? Well, I don't know. What's, yeah, what's that yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. I think Mike Tyson said something like, you know, my, my strategy – was going until I took a punch in the face. It, that's right. right. Yeah, yes, like, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Like right. So it's a little bit like that, you know, like uh, you have exactly. to be. Exactly. Sounds be a, great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So just to sort of uh, close off, I mean, what did you learn from the work that we did together? Because, you know, I've never asked you this. I mean, because we, we just did stuff together, right? We used to debrief and talk and stuff like that. But what did you learn from the stuff we did together? What are the real things that you learned? Yeah. So, so I would say, first of all, the things that I learned, you know, the tools that you provide, like the coaching trap or the manager's trap and, you know, the blowfish and all those things are really, really good. But to me, the greatest learning that I think and the value that that really brings a team together is spending time together. Mm. Right. And so the constructs are great. But by sitting next to someone for eight hours for a couple of days every quarter and sharing some personal story, you start to get to know them on a different level. And so that whole trust where you're like, this person has a whole lot of things going on. I understand what they like, what they don't like. I understand them as a human being. Makes a huge difference when you're in making really challenging decisions because you know them much better and all that other superficial things are put to the side. And I, I think, as you would say, spending time in the zone together mm. is really, really important. And, and to me, I would say spending time together is is what I know is the, the greatest strength of a team. And then I'll just say, and listening and making sure people are heard and that they feel part of the decision. So even if the decision doesn't go their way, they know they've been heard and they can get aligned with it. And so critically important. Mm. Hey, Bob, thanks very, very much for your time because I know you're a busy person. So I appreciate you know every, every second. And I think you've left us with a lot of gems and, and hopefully you'll get a queue of people uh, wanting to work for you because I know you've got hundreds of people out there that I know that would come and work for you at the drop of a hat. So, great. Thank, thank you, Liam. Always a pleasure. And uh, you know what? It's, it's only a matter of time before I need the zone at this company too. Yeah, yeah. We'll have fun in Seattle again. I love going there because it's a little bit like New Zealand. You know, such a beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, it you're is. in a, an amazing, amazing place. And uh, if, if any listeners never been to Seattle you know, go there. Because just like Bob was saying, there's not just one culture in America and there's not just one climate, there's not just one landscape. It's, it's a amazing, beautiful country of um, huge diversity. And so I love it. And I love sitting on your pier and looking out on the lake too. That's oh, no, it's, good. it's good living. That's good living. So thanks, Bob, again. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, just just through LinkedIn, just look up Bob Azelby on LinkedIn. Yeah, link, LinkedIn is great. You know, Bob Azelby or Robert on LinkedIn, A-Z-E-L-B-Y. And if they throw your name out, they'll definitely get a response. Excellent. And so if you want to go and work for an amazing business with an amazing purpose for a, a group of amazing people who have got their heart in it, and don't mind admitting when they're making a mistake, so it won't all be. You don't come thinking it's all going to be ship shape and shored oh. up because it ain't going to be like that. But it's going to be fun. That is true. Thanks, Bob. Ciao for now. Thank you, Liam. Take care. The Zone Way is a philosophy, a methodology, and a set of tools to create enlightened leaders and enlightened organisations. If you'd like to know more, you can get in touch with us on www dot the zone dot co until next time ciao for now